Here in Orlando, Florida, O-Town Compost is leading the composting revolution, recycling organic waste into a nutrient-rich resource. Join Charlie Pioli, founder of O-Town Compost, as we hear from the nation's leading voices behind the grassroots community composting movement. Welcome to the Community Composting Podcast. If you enjoy the Community Composting Podcast and want to support future episodes, please follow the link in the episode show notes to give a small monthly reoccurring donation, even if it's $5 to $10 a month. We'll continue to come out with killer content to keep the grassroots movement rolling. Welcome to episode number 34. Today I have a special guest from Denver, Colorado. Uh, Christy of Scrap Smile High. Uh, Christy just got back from a river rafting trip. She was able to take a, a break and unfortunately she tweaked her ankle, but what that would scare the crap out of me because so much of the business is dependent on me. And, you know, it's a very manual labor focused job, but Christy luckily has gotten to the point in her business where she's able to kind of take a step back and let her team do a lot of the operations work. Christy, was Scraps started in like 2016, 17? Yeah, February 2017. So I think late 2016, I decided to quit my job and start Scraps. Okay. And I read online that, you know, you're kind of a disenchanted apartment (laughs) dweller who didn't have an outlet for their for composting their scraps yeah I was pissed I mean I was like (laughs) frustrated disappointed disenchanted for sure um and yeah totally true convinced my boyfriend at the time who's now part owner of our company and still a very good friend um to like, let me compost under the sink, you know, get a little, I got like one of those stainless steel buckets. And I had a friend who had a compost pile in his backyard across town. I still didn't have a car then I was all just biking everywhere. Um, so I like, you know, would get these gnarly, heavy, gross bags of stuff after a couple weeks, you know, way too long and borrow my boyfriend's car which was a very nice car and like drive it across town to my buddy Chris's house to like toss it on his compost pile and um, sometimes weed. And, and that was like the solution. And it's like, this is just not, this can't, this, this is ridiculous. And, you know, at my, so that was kind of like at the condo, Prior to that, I lived in this apartment in this, you know, old Victorian house that had been kind of converted to like a multi-unit um, living situation. My landlord there was super cool. I got like an outdoor compost bin just for our front yard. And I was like, hey, can I, you know, can I compost here? And he's like, yeah, sure, do whatever you want. So I put this like, you know, like sort of four wall bin structure in our front yard but all I would have is like banana peels, coffee grounds, you know, there was no yard really to speak of. So it was just a little pile of like banana peels and coffee grounds and orange peels and no carbon. You You weren't like, no. And I was like, (laughs) doing anything. So I was totally one of those people who's like, Hey, this is tough. You know, you can't just throw it in a pile and something magical happens. Um, Yeah. And just hit a point where the organization I was working for was actually partnering with the city of Denver to promote their 2020 sustainability goals, which um, on the waste side included, you know, getting to national average by 2020. And this was in 2015 that those goals were set. We're nowhere close to it. We're doing worse actually now than we were in 2015 as a city. That's surprising. Yeah, volume wise, we're higher, but it, we have not kept a pace with the growth in the city of Denver. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, I guess, but population or, or um, sort of like we're per capita, we're doing worse. Mm-hmm. So, hovering still right around 19%, just like we were back then, which is awful. And that's the um, recycling rate. Is that right? Overall waste aversion. You got it. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, and you know, lots of stuff has happened in the interim and you can blame construction and demolition for a big chunk of it, but still that's pathetic. 
for yeah. a major metropolitan area that thinks it's super green and environmentally outdoorsy, you know, switched on. So we were partnering with the city to like promote their sustainability goals and kind of rah, rah, rah it. And the city, uh, you know, and the, I should say the people who worked for the office of sustainability for the city of Denver were wonderful people still um, partner with uh, some of them. Now, one of them is now an independent consultant who's, you know, no longer with the city. Um, but they were essentially unfunded, like an unfunded mandate kind of thing. Right. Maybe, you know, They're all people. like their hands are tied. They can't do yeah. anything. It's more of a symbolic position. You got Same it. is true here in Orlando. And yeah, it's pretty. Uh, it's pretty phony, in my opinion. Like it, the people are great. You know, I'm I stay Doing in what they can, with you them. Know? But yeah, it's just like, who would want to be in that role? It just would be uh, frustrating. Whoa. So difficult. And, and yeah, and, and, you know, with the organization I was working for, who, again, you know, have a great relationship with them, great people, but just like not quite leveraging our power or our position, you know, our potential to like really push the city. Instead, we were kind of patting the city on the back for doing Mm -hmm. nothing. And, and this, and the tactics since, you know, since the city council essentially wasn't able to really fund the Office of Sustainability to meet these 2020 sustainability goals, the the tactic was like, hey, citizens of Denver, here's what you should do, you know, to help reach these goals. And it's like, wait, what? Like in a vacuum, you, you know, there's, there's, of course, there's kind of top up meets bottom down or top down meets bottom up. But if top down is doing nothing but telling people what they can do better, you know, it's like, it's like the whole plastics recycling conundrum where it's like, well, if we're, you know, as citizens are doing everything we can to like clean and, and sort and like make sure our plastics are recycled. But the reality is only 9% of of plastic in the world has ever actually been recycled. And like, really it's Pepsi Cola and Coca-Cola, you know, who we need to. Right. And and ironically, that's unfair. Yeah. And ironically, they're the ones funding recycling uh, a lot. And, you know, that's a whole different uh, episode, but did you- But a a similar dynamic where it's like, we can't just be sitting here like telling the people of Denver, hey, it's on you, man. It's like, no, the city needs to put infrastructure and policies and and funding in, you know, in place to to actually support that change, so. You're preaching to the choir and (laughs) it doesn't sound like any infrastructure was in place in Denver before Scrap Smile High came on board, except for like one commercial composter. Yeah, so municipally, the city of Denver had at the time in 2017, a um, limited um, optional compost pickup um, subsidized through the general fund, um, through taxpayer dollars for people living in residential in single family homes on the residential side, commercial side, there's nothing, you know, public works, um, owns a bunch of trucks and runs the trash recycling and compost pickup for the city. It's only for residents and it's only for single family homes, which includes buildings up to seven units at the time that was only available in a certain number of neighborhoods and each neighborhood had, you know, capacity would hit just based on the fact that they only had a limited amount of trucks and drivers and funding to run it. Now, 2022, that program is citywide anywhere in the city of Denver has access to it. I believe there's no ceiling essentially on how many customers they can take on. There is a bit of a wait time, a couple months, you know, to get your compost bin dropped off, but it's essentially citywide now, but it still only applies. Huge improvement, but it still only applies to residential or single family homes or residential homes up to seven units. And it's still optional and it's still paid. So, you know, pay as you throw has been proposed and, you know, left on the table. I don't know how many times since, even since I've lived here, which is coming up on 10 years in a couple months here. Um, so you still have that economic 
disincentive to compost where trash is free, you know, and at least recycling is free and composting is paid for, whereas it should be that recycling and composting are perceived as free, uh, e.g., you know, funded by, fully funded by yeah. taxpayer dollars and, and government funds. Um, and trash is what you pay for because trash is the liability, again, preaching to the choir. No, but a pay, as improvement you throw, pay as you throw is definitely like the proven way to do curbside uh, waste for any municipality. And I put together right. presentations whenever I'm presenting at a conference or to municipality folks. I try to bring up like what they're doing in Massachusetts and New England in those these pay as you throw communities where landfill tipping fees are like $130 per ton. So yeah. they instituted this pay as you throw to really reduce the waste, but save the, the town some money. And it right. worked like amazingly, like you should see these charts. I should link yeah. them in the show notes, but I would actually love to see some, some updated numbers on how different municipal and statewide programs are going. It's, it's, it's awesome. And it's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a no brainer. And mm. it's one of those things where just the way, uh, waste, you know, the way trash has been presented to most residents across the United States, across municipalities, it's viewed as something that is really cheap and, and almost invisible as a cost. Um, and, you know, it's, it's, it's an economic decision. It's not, it, it, it's not a values-based decision. And if you just make a simple accounting switch, then you're, yeah. you're, you're just, you're, you know, the, all, all of the, there's no, there's no values that come into play. If that makes sense. Right. So you, you, you kind of take off the, that sort of um, need to like socially market the value of composting over landfilling to your community, which might have a wide range of education and, and economic ability and um, uh, sensitivity to environmental and climate issues versus, you know, trash is cheap and I don't care. Um, so, yeah. It's yeah, I mean, I'm sure this has happened to your company many times, but people want to donate their food scraps to you or yeah. they expect yeah. you to pick it up for free. Oh, but yeah. I want to talk a little bit, you know, did you start scraps out of a vacuum or did you have prior knowledge of other community composters? Um, uh, it was like a, a a mini vacuum. So, so I spent a lot of time thinking about the problem, uh, almost two years in total. And, you know, by the time I started scraps, it was literally keeping me up at night, you know, like this is ridiculous. No one's done anything. And I kept, I kept kind of hoping that someone would do something and no one was doing anything. No one was doing anything. And finally it was like, okay, I need to do something. And part of that something was a lot of research. I was working as a communications uh, manager for that nonprofit I mentioned, or that organization I mentioned, I was also moonlighting as a journalist, environmental reporter. So it was kind of in my nature and in my line of work to like do interviews and research. So I started like setting up, you know, informational interviews with people to, to try and scratch the surface and get a better understanding of what was going on policy wise and, and um, education wise, et cetera, in the Denver area. And then kind of on the national scale, um, well, I should say locally, I've reached out to um, Dan Mache, who runs the composting and hard to recycle materials program in Boulder at EcoCycle. He connected me with actually with Justin Sankdale, who runs Compost Now. And um, oh my gosh, I'm going to forget the uh, Dustin's last name, but another um, small composter in the Austin area who I believe has since been um, Kind of absorbed into the city of Austin's program. The bike, the bike hauler. It was bike bike based. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, And scraps, you know, a big, I don't know if that's true anymore, but when you started, uh, you were, a lot of your routes were very dense and you were using a bike trailer. 100%. 100%. So, so Dan connected me with Justin and Dustin, and I, you know, basically talked to them about this kind of dense multifamily downtown problem and this idea of of addressing it with bikes and trikes. And, you know, when I had presented that to Dan, he was like, oh, there's all, there's already these other organizations, these um, nonprofits and for-profit, you know, small groups that have 
attempted this in other places, like you should talk to them. So that was the thrust of our conversation back then. Like, you know, how do you price it? How do you market it? How, you know, logistically, um, you know, what size bins do you use? Um, do you do a swap or do you do a, you know, a, a, a bag pull, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and it's interesting because I, I honestly, I haven't spoken to Dustin in a long time. And, and like I said, I think their company was, was, was purchased or was, uh, they were kind of absorbed into the yeah, city. Now the city of Austin is like citywide composting. Right. There wouldn't be really a need for that kind of service anymore. Right. And then Justin at the time, you know, he was already telling me like, you know, there's a limit to what you can do on a bike. And I was like, yeah, but we'll never reach that. I'm thinking small, like just, I really wanted to prove a point and to show that like, if you think outside the box, and I should say most, most of the folks I would talk to in the way that the city contextualized the issue in the way that even Alpine waste, which is an interesting, we can circle back to where Alpine waste is now. Um, but that one commercial hauler that exists in the city, the way that they thought of the multifamily problem was that it was impossible, intractable, you know, mm -hmm. too difficult, like property managers are difficult. Properties no, are difficult. That's so true. Nationwide, yeah. all municipality departments like they have no approach to the multi-family waste Zero. sector because they everyone shares a dumpster and they don't know what to do so yeah. yeah and their businesses and you know businesses in denver get to do whatever they want with their waste it doesn't have to be even recycled even now in 2022 you know multi-family um, and all other businesses don't even have to recycle, which is ridiculous. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, and they're not, you know, public works is in no position to service them, but the fact that the problem was treated as like impossible was just ridiculous. And, you know, we, that was a, we were entering into another kind of growth spurt in Denver where, you know, at one point we had like 10,000 people moving to the city every week or something ridiculous. So wow. multifamily, you know, building construction was going crazy and, and just, you know, new residents moving to Denver was going crazy. And a lot of them were moving into multifamily buildings who did not have access to these services. So for me, it was like, okay, this is at least worth a try, you know, mm -hmm. like dense downtown multifamily bike-based um, cause a lot of the multifamily restrictions or perceived, um, roadblocks came down to access and access in terms of, you know, there's not enough alley space for a big truck. There's not enough space for a large container. Um, and there's not enough buy-in and, and not enough kind of avenues to getting buy-in for an entire building. So, um, you know, our approach was unit by unit and, you know, get sort of the blessing, if not the thumbs up or, or, you know, that sort of the tacit approval and look the other way of the property management company or HOA, um, ideally the blessing and partnership, which is certainly what we have now. Um, and then get unit by unit contracts, eventually full building contracts, which we have with several dozen buildings now across the And I see you use EcoSafe products. Are you using their multi-res service or you have a different style program for multifamily? Um, we have, we've connected. So we use EcoSafe bags and I should say we've tried a number of different brands of bags. We've had fantastic partnerships with BioBag, WorldCentric, each has their own strengths in different sizes and thicknesses and applications. But for our um, both residential and commercial applications and our event applications, EcoSafe has just been hands down the best to work with. So we have connected some of our full building members with EcoSafe to kind of implement their um, you know, bag dispenser program and, you know, have them just be able to order directly through EcoSafe. I'm honestly not sure if anyone has, but we offer a bag refill program to our customers. It's actually really popular, even though people pay a premium to buy bags from us, which are from EcoSafe um, versus just going to the store and buy them. It's really widely used. Um, and, you know, we do everything we can to work with a building to make sure they don't run out of bags or members do have access to, you know, to, um, to bags for their bins. And on top of that, in, in instances where we have a full building contract, we either provide a large toter, like a 32 or 64 gallon toter, which we only started offering last year, or a, a series of smaller 16 gallon bins. The toters don't need liners because we pick them up with our, our, our compactor and it, it tips them. 
the 16 gallon bins, we provide liners. So in either case, if you're in a building that has a, a full building contract, as we call it, you don't need to use bags in your bin. Mm-hmm. You can, if you want to, you know, in your personal household bin, but you don't have to, which is a really nice perk. Um, other than that, we require that people use bags, um, individually. So we can, cause we do a bag pull program. Um, I, I still don't understand how people in other cities afford the real estate and water and electricity needed to do a bin swap program. Mm -hmm. There's no way we could make that happen in Denver and scale it. Um, You also hit a limit in, you know, what type of um, vehicles you can use. You know, we have hundreds and hundreds of people on each of our routes and a truck can only carry so many full bins. But if you're emptying those bins into larger vessels or a larger truck, you can compact that and get a lot more efficiency so yeah um um and i was wondering you know that makes sense uh that you guys don't do the bin swap that you know that that would make um riding your bike and having a trailer (laughs) a lot more uh efficient and easier but um i wanted to ask like now that you guys are into the commercial sector and i saw it your new packer truck, your new organic yeah. packer truck. Um, <laughs> new, but very old. <laughs> new yeah, it's like a 25 <laughs> yard rear loader. Um, yeah. So where, how <laughs> does, uh, how does your commercial service differ from Alpine? And, you know, what, what is it like? You seem like a connoisseur of bins, which is what <laughs> I, I call myself too. I, I, I would put myself in that category. I know far more than I ever thought I would or wanted to about uh, bins and bags um, in the organics space. Um, yeah, so a couple things. First, Alpine Waste has been purchased. They were purchased by um, Waste uh, Quit Waste something who was rapidly purchased by GFL. You know, the whole plan was for it to be ultimately acquired by GFL. So Alpine is now GFL. The former, the, the founder of Alpine Waste is actually now one of our owners and a good friend. He's been a longtime mentor. It's incredible to have him on our ownership team. Um, so GFL unfortunately has basically killed the compost collection side of Alpine. They've done a number on the recycling collection as well. They're, they're, you know, they're a multinational and investor owned company focused on shareholder dollars and, you know, maximizing shareholder returns. And for them, that's trash, trash, trash and landfills. And it's, it's been really unfortunate, but for us, there's been um, a real boon in the sense that we've gotten a wonderful driver, a wonderful mechanic and the founder of Alpine Waste is kind of like, all right, you know, let's, let's pull back in. We're kind of combining kind of the scraps approach and his expertise in building the composting side of Alpine into a really wonderful offering for commercial customers. So, um, Commercial on the commercial side, it's interesting. We've seen so much growth on the commercial side, especially since GFL, you know, totally screwed the contracts it had um, with waste management, with waste connections. They actually had um, agreements with all the other haulers in in the region that um, in the Denver metro region that stipulated that if they sold a composting contract to a current trash and recycling uh, client of theirs, they had to sub it to Alpine. GFL did such a poor job of maintaining those contracts that they lost almost all of them. And so we, you know, at at the same time that we were kind of more aggressively marketing our commercial side, we had all these other commercial customers just falling in our lap because no one else is out there doing commercial service. Um, Our pricing is definitely higher than Alpine. That's in part because, you know, even as we grow, we're nowhere near the size that Alpine was, you know, I think they had something like 80 trucks when John sold the company, we've got one CDL truck and, you know, a fleet of six total. Um, and you know, we can't capture those economies of scale. We pay people quite a bit, um, starting wage and CDL driver wage, fuel prices are up, et cetera, et cetera. It's more of a boutique service. So our pricing is a little bit higher, not all that much, honestly, um, kind of, uh, yard for yard. We, it's mostly, you know, service costs is kind of volume and frequency with a little bit of, you know, location in the mix. Um, 
but you know, suffice to say it's, it's a very similar service to what Alpine was offering. Um, very different service than what we offer our residential customers. What differs our, or differentiates our, you know, scraps commercial service from what Alpine was and GFL kind of sort of still is offering is really our focus on training and education. Um, we require <clears throat> all of our new commercial customers to do a, a, a startup training. We provide all sorts of educational materials, flyers, posters, signage. We can do custom co-branded stuff or just you know whatever it takes to get a team all rowing in the same direction and excited about composting and more than anything connected with why it's important. And then that makes operationalizing it in different settings easier. If everyone feels like this is, I have a connection to this, you know, from my values, I will do this as part of my job. It's easier. Um, Alpine didn't really ever do that. They had like, you know, kind of a flyer that was like, this is compostable. This isn't. And that was really it. Um, we are really diligent about that education yeah, training. More of a hands-on approach. And I yeah. agreed. Everyone needs a hands-on approach with their commercial customers or else you seriously risk contamination. And, you know, with businesses, there's a turnover of staff. So you need to probably do it at least once a year. Oh yeah. And with some of our clients, like we just got our first, um, our first couple of <clears throat> Starbucks clients. So with, you know, with clients like that, where there's particularly high turnover or particularly fast paced environment, or it's a particularly new and challenging thing, we just say, Hey, free unlimited training. You just, you schedule us and we'll come back, you know, and whatever support you need in terms of signage, education, et cetera, we're here for you. Um, we have some clients where we have kind of a, a secondary contract with them to provide really close ongoing support in that way, which is, which is also great for us. And, you know, something that for a really long time we were offering just for free forever for everyone. And it's something I think that for composters like us, like you said, we are kind of bin experts, bag experts, like really simple strategies that, that we've, you know, seen work that other people just may not have at their fingertips that has value. And it's totally, it's worth it to charge money for that. So we are doing that with some of our higher level commercial clients, um, you know, that yeah. kind of require a higher level of handholding. To speak about the customization of commercial composting programs, that is like an art and, you know, after you just need experience to know, like, what is the right technique? Uh, what is the right program for the right customer? You know, yeah. I, I here at O-Town Compost, we offer maybe four or five different commercial bins. We offer mm -hmm. a stainless steel step can for office clients because it looks very professional and it has it. like this insert that we can just swap out like we would a, a bucket because we do the, the swap. Um, you know, we have a kitchen caddy, which might go uh, hand in hand with the stainless steel step can because these offices pump out tons of coffee grounds and you want that, yeah. that uh, <laughs> you want the kitchen caddy right by the coffee machine. And, For then, sure. and then we have 32, 64, we even have a 12 gallon, like with a lockable lid, which is oh, cool. a little. Is that smaller. an eco safe one? No, um, no, but I think it's very similar. Uh, it's kind of like the Orbis. Have you heard of Orbis? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's similar to gallon. that, but it's perfect for like, what sucks is we swap them and we have to wash them out. So it does add some labor on the back end, but it works really well for our clients. So we're kind of reluctant yeah. to change that. But and what, you don't have winter in Florida, so your your hoses don't freeze. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't struggle with that problem. We just, you know, have a, a pretty big uh, insect population here in Florida. Oh, fun. <laughs> As you start to take on more food scraps, you realize very quickly that you need a better composting system to process the material. This is why I highly recommend the aerated static pile micro bin designed and made easy by O2 Compost. In 60 days, I have finished compost without putting in the labor of turning the pile. The piles heat up to over 140 degrees, killing pathogens, weed seeds, and fly larvae, making the end product safe to use in the garden. 
With 32 plus years of experience in the compost industry, Peter Moon, owner of O2 Compost, is a leading expert in the field of ASP composting. I encourage you to set up a free half an hour consultation with Peter Moon by going to his website, www.o2compost.com. That's the letter O, the number two, compost.com. If you mentioned that you heard about O2 Compost on this podcast, you'll receive a 10% discount on the purchase of the Microbin Compost Training Program. But um, so what kind of bins do you use for your commercial? And what are like, can you think of a, a you know, a, a problem that you had to solve for a commercial okay. client? Multiple, um, <laughs> endless. So we for, I should say for our commercial clients, we used to do bin swaps. So we would offer 10 gallon, um, stackable, nestable, um, the little Carlisle Bronco bins they're called. So these little round green 10 gallon bins, they have a snap on lid. Mm. Even when you fill them full up with, you know, wet coffee grounds, the maximum weight you're going to get is like 80 pounds, which is on the heavy side. So you can Mm. carry them. One person can kind of man or woman handle them in and out of a trike, stack them. I think we could get 12 or maybe 14 on like a crazy day in the back of a trike. Wow. And then we would, we would like wash them, you know, spray wash them in alleys and then do a swap. Um, this was, you know, back before we had a headquarters before we had anything. Um, so we've, we've abandoned, we've transitioned everyone um, from the 10 gallon system to an either a 32 gallon toter or a 64 gallon toter. Um, and then, like I said, some of our um, multifamily, like full building multifamily customers and, and our offices still have individual 16 gallon bins in their offices. Um, so for the toters, it's great. It's a lower price um, kind of pound for pound or yard and for yard. Sure, with the toters, you just like tip them into your truck cart. So easy, yep. easy, yeah. You got, well, easy peasy, except when they're completely frozen and it doesn't even come out. And then when it does, you know, sometimes you break handles or, you know, uh, pull bars because it's, you know, the plastic gets cold and, and Mm -hmm. you know, brittle. Um, so do you guys repair your pull bars or your totes by any chance? Like we just had one break and I'm wondering what I need to do to repair it. (laughs) So the only ones we've had break are the ones that have a, we got a bunch of used ones from A1 Organics, which long time ago used to do hauling. Now they're our processing partner and they had a plastic um, kind of bar grip grab bar. So we've only had those break. We haven't had the metal sort of through axle bars break yet. And honestly, I don't know how to fix them. I think it would take adhesive and plastic and, and it's so old and brittle already that I, I just don't think it would be worth it. So we just had to recycle them. Um, but, uh, yeah, (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. Um, we do our best, you know, certainly with the, those, those 10 gallon Carlisle Bronco bins that we always used to use, those things were burly as all get out would not break, you know, with the handles wouldn't break no matter how heavy you got them. And now that some of them are just, you know, we're not using them anymore and they're super gross or, you know, you, you clean them, but they're still kind of grease stains that Mm -hmm. never, ever go away. We're going to sell, um, compost in some of them, um, for earth day. And then we've, we just basically continually make the, put out the call to our like restaurant customers or some of our farm partners. We have a couple small farms that we drop certain types of material off to, um, and just say, Hey, do you need these? You know, we don't need them anymore. So try and get more life out of them. Even after their useful life has ended with us. The most common struggle we have with bins is just wheels breaking or like the little sort of little cap that comes off of the that that holds the wheel onto the axle you can buy those i like actually bought those on uh and then offline and then i was able to just snap one back on exactly yeah easy peasy and there's all sorts of like interim fixes or like if you just roll it really carefully (laughs) the wheel will come off um our uh yeah i mean uh, our challenges with commercial customers it's usually like it's either logistics related or contamination related. Um, and you know, contamination either comes from 
So we've had a couple instances where say upper management or ownership is really like hundred percent on board with zero waste and composting and like our whole food hall or a whole facility is going to compost, but then kind of ground level management doesn't get the memo or does, or there's high turnover, or of course we just had two years of COVID weird shit where, you know, people come and go and places are open and closed. Um, so some of our biggest struggles with some of our longest standing customers um, have been with kind of that high, low level management turnover where upper management ownership is like super duper on board. And then somehow there's disconnect and we'll come in and do trainings and retrainings and retrainings and retrainings. So there's so much turnover and so little follow through. Um, that's a big challenge. And I think just, just, having that commitment to education and engagement and um, yeah and I also (laughs) like from my experience you know these people are busy doing their jobs like they don't want to be given another job that they're especially not being paid for so right I kind of when I'm doing a training I don't like put it on anyone's shoulders but I'm (laughs) just like this is easy you know you will get the hang of it real fast Mm-hmm. Here's my number if you have any questions. Yeah. But I don't try to make it seem daunting at all. So For sure, which is so important and I think think again a lot of it from our experience it's been like that sort of upper management to ground level management disconnect where it's like mm-hmm. we're here because your boss is paying us to be here let us make this easy for you. You know, like we're not trying to step on your toes, we're not trying to give you more work, but like yeah. this is like we're being paid to show up here three times, four times, five times a week, <laughs> you know, like if you just kind of let us do this training, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's like, I, there's one in particular who it's like our biggest love hate relationship over almost five years where they took a chance on us early when we were small and really helped us grow and get our name out there. But some of those yeah, management challenges on their side have really um, had a negative impact on their ability to 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 get their waste situation sorted at all. And some real early mistakes that were never corrected, like they made actually made. And I won't name them, but I'm sure no one from Denver is listening close. Well, I don't know. Hopefully, no one is listening close enough to figure this out. But this one lovely, wonderful client of ours made simultaneously the largest order of world-centric compostable products in the Denver region for that year and the largest compactor contract through Alpine Waste for a trash compactor at the time for the region for the year. So it was like left didn't know it was right what Wright was doing. It's like, hey, we have the zero waste commitment. Everything in the food hall is going to be compostable. We're using this composting company. We've got a limited space in our trash enclosure. And then they get this giant trash compactor with a five-year contract, like a five-year self-renewing contract. That's crazy. What? Yeah. Yeah. So just some kind of, you know, some things that were out of our control that we've had to sort of spend years um, reining in to try and get their diversion levels up and their engagement up. So let me ask about how you price uh, commercial, you know, contracts. Yeah. You have a kind of formula uh, for different generator sectors or do you kind of customize each one? Yeah. So, so we have essentially a rubric and basic guidelines. Um, But as our CFO would say, it's, it's a little bit of art and a little bit of science. Um, So, you know, the major factors that come into play are volume, weight, and uh, service frequency with a little dash of how far away are you? And, you know, there are limits to our service area. For certain clients, we're willing to push those limits, such as Starbucks or NREL, our first uh, federal contract, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory. So there can be places that are like a little bigger and a little farther away than we wanted, but like there's some real good long-term growth potential here. Right. it. Um, but that comes with a premium. Um, there's essentially, you know, our labor costs, our fuel costs and fuel of course is crazy and trip time. Um, and then a, um, an estimate of kind of what 
what percentage of our ultimate tipping fees at the compost facility um, will come from a certain contract are all baked into it, but it's not perfect. <laughs> it's really not perfect. And, you know, over time, as we kind of sort of look back and analyze our different pricing levels for different contracts, it's like, wow, this one's making money. This one's good. This one is stable. This one's losing us a ton of money. We just didn't realize it at the time because we expected it to be lighter or we didn't factor in, you know, that fuel cost would have doubled by now. Um, so we're constantly, yeah, sort of reassessing our pricing model. Um, and we're being, I have to say more conservative in padding it now, especially, I mean, like I was just looking at today's, just today's expenses alone. We had upwards of $700 in fuel costs for our, for our routes. And what's today, Wednesday, it's a fairly hefty day. We have, I think four trucks on the road, but like, that's just one day just fueling up trucks. And yeah. that's, you know, that's several hundred dollars more than it was a couple months ago. And week over week, that month over month, that adds up. So we have been more conservative in, you know, each kind of new round of clients that we bring on, on the commercial side, we're like a little bit more conservative with how we price them because, you know, ultimately we pay our folks well, our drivers start at $20 an hour. Our CDL drivers make $26 an hour. Um, we have an operations director who makes a wonderful wage. We provide healthcare, we provide professional development um, and, you know, decent. We want this to be something that people are, that our people, that our team are treated well for, are fairly compensated for. And Denver's a really expensive place to live. Um, and, you know, even now, like even with what we're paying our drivers, it's not quote unquote enough to like live and thrive and, you know, save for the future in, in Denver, Denver's so expensive mm. and it's getting worse, you know, and we just had record inflation, of course, nationwide. And the, the PPI for the Denver Metro was like 7%, you know, for 2021. Wow. So, um, so, you know, it, it ultimately comes down to, and, and it's so interesting, right? Like looking back five years ago, it was like, okay, it's just me and an intern and a bicycle and a crazy idea and no one's getting paid. And everyone's just like working on blood, sweat, and tears. And now it's like, I am responsible for people. We are responsible for people. They have spouses, they have children, they have lives. You know, a lot of them are like amazing young professionals who are so committed to this idea and to this to this really important, you know, kind of sector of our economy um, from both a values perspective and like a professional development perspective, I want to support them first and foremost. So yeah. at every chance we get, we really emphasize to our scraps customers, our members that, you know, if there's a price increase, if there's a, you know, something that feels like it's, uh, you know, nickel and diming you um, as a member, like if your membership goes up by 50 cents or by a dollar, this is why, you know, we're paying our people well, we're paying, we're, we're trying to create a sustainable, um, fair, equitable work environment. And, you know, uh, it's yeah. honestly, that's what keeps me up at night at this point, as much as the diversion and the, the climate impact and the environmental impact. Yeah. And I think you don't want to get into this business if you're looking to like get super rich and, you know, eventually yeah. <laughs> like just walk away and sell the company and, yeah. not, you know, wipe your hands of it. But you're uh, looking okay. at my entire house right now, so <laughs> 700 square foot cottage. But, oh, wow. you know, I, I think I think that being said, you know, just to to kind of be realistic, I just turned 40. Um, I've been in this for five years. I'm more and more excited about the compost application side, the sort of regenerative farming. Okay, what is the impact of this finished product? The kind of end steps of closing the loop. I've been doing more and more farming here. I've got you know, a, a menagerie of misfit rescue animals. And um, yeah, I've got about a hundred, you know, hot pepper starts here and tomatoes and, and potatoes and, and, you know, all sorts of herbs and, and whatnot over here, because I'm really interested in the soil nourishment side and learning more and really diving in, digging yeah. in as it were into that kind of regenerative piece of what, you know, what we're actually doing. Uh, and I, I feel 
I think not satisfied, but but happy with the impact Scraps has made thus far on kind of generating that that demand in the market for composting in the ter- in the sense of you know compost collection um, options. And I personally am feeling really drawn to the the compost application side and, you know, Mm -hmm. all of the soil biology that comes from it. So, you know, and it's five years in, we've got, there's me and three other owners on the team, and we certainly have an exit strategy. You know, they're, uh, the majority of them are capital partners. They put money into our company, our ideas, and maybe someday we'll be, something different will happen and we'll be acquired or we'll merge with another company. You know, that's certainly on the table. And, you know, personally, I'm not looking for some big ticket exit, but I do um, finally feel like this may have been something I've done that will help me to move to the next phase of my life with a little bit of savings and a little bit of cushion and, you know, do something that's very related to compost hauling. But maybe doesn't bring with it the insane amount of stress of managing a fleet of trucks that could kill someone, including my team members or just any old person. And yeah, just like all of the, uh, the, the anxiety and stress that comes with, um, being responsible for a fleet of trucks and a, and a, and a team of people and, um, you know, having a business. And this is one thing, I don't know, I don't know what your general audience is, but if it's entrepreneurs thinking of starting a composting company, one thing I've realized over these past five years is I started a business that I, I can't close the doors on, you know, I can't just say spring break, we're closed. You know, you got to pick it up. You have to Yeah, waste, never sleep. It never stops. It never stops. So my dream is to have like a shop where I can just be like, I'm only open Wednesdays two to four, you know, yeah. like, that's it. So it's, you know, it's, I'm to the point where I don't want the satisfaction and the joy to be overwhelmed by the stress and mm-hmm. the constant, just like of every challenge that comes your way. Yeah, I totally understand. Yeah. I just have a couple more questions for you. Sure. Um, I'm just curious what, looking at your your numbers if you wouldn't mind sharing how many residential accounts commercial accounts and how many pounds a week are is scraps composting and hauling to the compost site yeah so um pounds per week well here i'll start with and they can be rough estimates you know you don't yeah so it's it's about 25 to thirty thousand pounds a week total awesome it's fun. Yeah, it's it's growing. Um, and now that we just added a couple big boy accounts, um, yeah, it's just grown more and more. So we've gone, you know, from one tip a week to two tips a week, and we're gonna have to add a third soon. Um in terms of customers, we have I think about 90 commercial customers, so not a ton, but volume-wise, they're producing 80% of the volume. Mm-hmm. Um, just, you know, the difference between having a six gallon residential bin, which I don't think I ever answered that question. Our residents have the six gallon eco safe bin, um, and, a 32 or 64 or even 16 gallon, you know, office or commercial bin is just order of magnitude different. Right. Um, so we have about 700 strictly individual residential customers, um, out in the Denver Metro area. We also have a municipal contract with the city of Edgewater, where we are the exclusive compost provider. We have about 200 people work uh, composting with us there. It's an awesome, awesome thing. Yeah, how could I forget to ask about that program? That was but yeah, please talk about that. And is the city of Edgewater like subsidizing it? How is the finance working? Yeah. So quickly on Edgewater. So about 200 people participating. They're the only scraps customers who get a 64 gallon bin as a resident serviced in their alley or some of them curbside who don't have alleys and a couple of weird Oh, because you're doing yard waste with food waste. You got it. Yard and food. So the city of Edgewater has subsidized the cost of the bins and they've also subsidized um, one or $2 of every individual's uh, 
membership. So, you know, from the city's perspective, that's a really small investment. It's also a small city. It's one square mile, uh, 1200 households. So we still have a long way to go. We're only at 200 after a year and a half. Um, we're really hoping that this big earth day event must be amazingly dense of a route. (laughs) Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's a grid. It's Mm. a wonderful, it's incredibly efficient. It's our most efficient route by far. Um, and it allows people to not use bags to combine food waste and yard waste. They get pickups every week. You know, they get a discount on their compost distribution every year. It's a boon. Um, and there's a wonderful, wonderful sustainability committee in the city of Edgewater that we partner with the city manager's wonderful. The city assistant manager. They reached out to you or did you kind of make They reached out to us. They reached out to us like three years ago, actually, Lily Steyer, who's a good friend now and who is now on city council herself. And I have, I have one of her hens as my my rescue hens, um, because she's redoing her backyard. Um, Fantastic, um, a proactive, you know, in it for the long haul group of people and and a really tight knit community. Um, How long did it take from the initial time, a year and a half? I'd say. Yeah. And then it was just a six month pilot. And then the pilot had to be approved at the city council level. And then we had to make changes to the pilot, which also had to be approved. All these things that would be like morass and just like banging your head against the wall with a city the size of Denver. Fantastic working with Edgewater and and even some of these other kind of like, you know, Wheat Ridge, Lakewood, Westminster, Arvada cities where we have really great positive uptake from citizens and and good relationships with with municipal uh you know staffers there's still this inertia at sort of the decision making level to like make something citywide or partner with a company like ours or have some form of not even mandate but you know like official composting partner and you know edgewater folks get they pay 17 or $18 a month to compost with us. Everyone else in the Denver area pays $28 a month. So they're getting steep discounts mm-hmm. because we have all these wonderful partnership elements in place. Plus the city of Edgewater pays us in a lump sum once a month. So we don't have to pay, you know, 200 separate transaction fees through our pay mm-hmm. processor and they pay us faithfully and via ACH, which is wonderful. <laughs> so, uh, so it is win, win, win. I love, I love, I, I feel absolutely blessed to have Edgewater as our first. And why can't that be a template for other municipalities around the country? It should be. I need to, I need to like make uh, the people in Florida aware of that because you're right. It probably wouldn't be the right move for a city like Orlando or Tampa, Miami, but for like a small municipality that's yeah. kind of like in the suburbs, that might be perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And you know, it's, it, but it's so interesting because you just have to have this perfect combination of like engaged citizens and decision makers and, you know, density and route kind of logistics um, to make it all happen. And like I said, even their neighbors, Wheat Ridge, Lakewood, Arvada, Westminster, Broomfield, um, they're just a little bigger, little different political makeup, little different citizen makeup, you know, still dealing with people who are like, I don't want to pay more for trash. And it's like, it's 2022, dude. Like you shouldn't be, you should be paying more for trash, but you shouldn't have this much trash. Look at all these leaves you put in your garbage. It should be illegal to put your grass clippings in your garbage. Like what is going on uh, in these literal next door, you know, adjacent cities um but yeah there there that's the purple patchwork of the denver metro um awesome yeah yeah anyway so so that's oh go ahead i wanted to ask you about like your logistics it sounds like the new 25 yard rear loader is what maybe is that what's out on the route for commercial pickups or is that also like, do you take all your food waste, the the drivers from previous routes, take it back to your headquarters and then you load it up? So, yeah, yeah. explain like your your logistical process. Yeah. So we um, we have one CDL driver who hopefully soon we'll have a second CDL driver. So we've got one guy who's running all of our big, our big yellow routes, as we call them. And he's amazing. He's an absolute powerhouse. If, if any of y'all check us out on Instagram today, you'll see in our story that uh, our 
compost delivery load was so heavy that the dump truck wouldn't dump and he actually like like oh I saw got it, that. Yeah. got it to go with his pure muscle and I was like oh I wish your kids were here because they think he's a superhero and he is Hercules damn yes <laughs> it was amazing um and so everyone else is trained on how to use the compactor so turn on the truck turn basically turn on the auxiliary power and then you know run to the back and and run the compactor and if it's on site and not in motion you don't have to have a cdl you don't have to have a commercial driver's license to operate the compactor so um if sometimes folks meet up mid-route and our f-150s which run a lot of our residential routes will meet up with the big yellow and just load into the back um they're just simple pickup trucks you don't have like a easy dump in the back right no we have one with a lift gate we're considering getting a perkins satellite but it's like a hundred thousand dollars for a new chassis and a perkins satellite which would be great because you know it increase our capacity and you could just dump right into the back of the 25 yarder but for now we just we fill like 40 gallon toters and just dump them direct like where i'm actually looking at that perkins satellite as well which dealership mm-hmm. are you going uh, through. So we use Elliott equipment out here. I don't know if they're in Florida. They're all over the West and the Midwest. They are the Perkins, uh, dealer in this area. They're actually where, where we bought our big yellow truck. They do all of our diesel, um, repairs. Um, so they've been great. Um, we, we got hooked up with Elliott because we put a Perkins high clearance tipper, um, on our dump truck back before we got big yellow, we basically like modified the dump truck to tip toters into it, which was a good, very, very short-term solution. Um, so yeah, Elliot equipment, and I'm more than happy to, you know, put you in touch with Gene Elliot, who's the founder's son, who's our guy, really, really wonderful, incredible expert on much more than I could ever absorb on how, um, yeah, how hydraulic systems work in compactor trucks. That's and more, awesome. It, oh, he's been such a wonderful resource. Um, and, and I'll you know, definitely now, take you up on that after this uh, interview. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so yeah, you know, folks, uh, generally speaking at the end of their route, but sometimes at the beginning, depending on how dark it is or how cold it is when people are ending their routes, um, they'll just back their truck up to the yellow truck and dump in. And we do have some, um, customers of ours who, um, tip directly at our site. So we have 32 and 64 gallon toters set aside for them. They fill them up. We charge them per toter and then we'll empty those toters into the yellow truck when they fill up. Or sometimes the yellow truck's not on site when the F-150s are done. And so we'll empty into the toters. So we always have, you know, 20 or 30 empty toters here on site to fill up. Now I'm sure no one from Jefferson County, Colorado is listening. It's like kind of sort of a transfer station, but not, Um, we're not permitted as a transportation. Nothing hits the ground, nothing hits a pad and is, you know, loaded with a bucket loader. Everything's containerized, even if it's moving from truck to truck. So for now, we're just kind of flying under the radar since the permitting and zoning process is an absolute nightmare to get a transfer station permitted. There are actually two permitted transfer stations right in the region. So we're working with the city of Arvada and ideally with Jefferson County to try and activate those sites. So there's, uh, so there's a legit transfer station, which would help us and all sorts of other haulers and just, you know, waste diversion in general in the region. Yeah, that seems awfully messy, though, tipping food waste onto a pad and then trying to scoop it back up. Into right. a, but that's what, what, you know, but that's what organics transfer stations often do. Um, so instead, you know, it's far less efficient, but we just keep it, you know, if we have to move it from truck to container to big truck, that's what we do. Nothing hits the ground. If that yeah. Makes sense. Nothing yeah. hits the ground, Jefferson County. <laughs> okay. But yeah, and and we've got, you know, we're, again, very grateful, very happy to have um, individuals supporting us on all levels at the city of Arvada, which is where we're located. We're also, we're actually technically unincorporated Jefferson County, kind of surrounded by city of Arvada, Jeffco officials as well, uh, you know, all sorts of individuals who understand the value, I think, of what we're doing and of waste, regional waste diversion efforts in general. But there's just this political morass in you know, like activating that transfer station. So we can really like catapult things forward. So in the meantime, we're like, ask forgiveness, you know, just keep doing what we're doing until someone tells us not to. 
Yeah, and and I assume that you have other place other places in Colorado like Boulder and EcoCycle and I forget that Butte County or there's some another I read an article recently about somewhere in Colorado where there's another community composter who's like just got a ton of grant funding and is oh yeah probably out in Durango which would Durango yeah County yeah um table to farm composting they're crushing it and they're one of their founders is is on the board for recycle Colorado which is the industry organization for all of the organics and traditional recyclers um yeah they're crushing it and then oh, yeah course, I mean it, the tone is kind of set in the state of Colorado where is like in the state of Florida like I still very much feel like Davy Crockett a pioneer <laughs> who's you know yeah. macheting my way through the jungle so I love someone's got to do it I, yeah. honestly that I mean Charlie that's how we felt in 2017 you know mm-hmm. where property managers were the enemy and, you know, we would be like, we would like to let your residents compost. And they're like, are you going to dump a bucket of garbage on my front porch? Like, what are you talking about? No way. And now we have property managers knocking down our door. Like we want to implement composting across our properties. So we'll get through to them. You will get through to the people and the decision makers and the gatekeepers. It's just like, it's a, it's a struggle bus. Uh, It's, it's an embarrassing like commentary on where, where we are as a nation in terms of organics diversion and just that awareness. And, you know, I wish there was a way, I wish USCC had the power and the funding and the connections to make like a national campaign of it, you know, and uh, you're, you're in Florida. So you understand the implications of a purple state or a, a red state. Um, you know, we talk about job creation all the time, report after yeah. report for the past five years now in Colorado has shown time and time again, that investing in recycling and composting creates two to nine times as many jobs as trash. Like, well, I'm actually, uh, I'm flying up to, to DC next month to have oh, dinner yeah. with like the USCC and ISLR. And, uh, this guy who's been on my podcast named Jack is starting a compost super pack. So it's like lobbying for composting. I'm totally supportive of playing the same game that other politicians play. Oh, yeah. I mean, big trash is a lobby. Big big compost should definitely have a lobby and small compost. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. But let me ask you one final question. This has been a a very (laughs) eye-opening interview. What does scrappiness mean to you, Christy? Oh, geez. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, huh. um, so I think if I were to boil it down, um, I would go back to kind of my like origin mantra, which is do what you can with what you have where you are. Um, and that you can apply that at all sorts of scales to all sorts of, um, conundrums and, um, I hate the word problem, um, to challenges. Um, but ultimately like if, if you have an idea and you have resources and you have, you know, some sort of drive, um, and you are in a place, (laughs) you know, with a certain context, then put that all together. Like that's scrappiness. Um, and yeah, you know, my ultimate and always, um, inspiration, uh, is from living in Madagascar. I was a Peace Corps volunteer right out of college for four years, actually, and then stayed in Madagascar another three years. Um, so for my, you know, close to a decade living in Madagascar and getting to know this incredible country and varied, amazing community of peoples. Um, I saw scrappiness in about a million different forms where, you know, people who let, let's leave aside the fact that they have far less than, than we would ever imagine having as, you know, a typical, typical American and are far happier than we are as typical average Americans, but just the ingenuity and, and drive and sort of creativity of people um, is, is incredible. And, and people's connection with their, 
their community is is so much deeper than than we have. And I think, yeah, I guess being scrappy is kind of leveraging all those different pieces. Um, you know, what's your community? What's your what's your place? What's your idea and your, you know, what do you have kind of at the at, at your fingertips in terms of resources? And um, you know, go do it. Yeah, I totally agree. I I would say scrappiness is just being resourceful and not, you know, feeling that those pangs of self-doubt or fear when you come to a you arrive at a situation that you're you don't you're not used to. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to say, like in my biography on the website, uh, I'm scrappy but happy. So yeah, <laughs> I love it. I love it. What a great question. Yeah, it's it. That's great. It's a good core thing to come back to, you know, to kind of recenter and remember what the heck we're doing. Yeah. Well, thank you again, Christy. It's been a huge pleasure. And I I know you'll keep crushing it out there. Um, So have a good rest of the evening. Yeah, likewise. And thank you so much for for featuring us. And yeah, keep doing what you're doing. This is great. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Please rate and review on whichever podcast platform you're listening to. If you feel like this is good content and you're learning a lot about composting.